Am I alive or dead? <laughs> you muted me. You muted me. It's good to be with you all. hope you feel the same about me, but if you don't, vote positively anyway today. Let's pray. Lord God, you are beautiful and marvelous. You're majestic. You're, you're faithful. You're just. You, you're full of grace and mercy. You perform your justice and total fairness through your view. You have been, you are, and you always will be. You knew our names as you hung up on the cross. You are relentlessly pursuing us. You are deeply in love with us. And you have never regretted dying for us. Just those things, Lord, take a lifetime to comprehend. But Lord, you've given us time. And uh, we want to use it wisely. God, may you minister to uh, your people this morning. May it be uh, done in such a way that it's understandable. And Lord, we depend upon the Holy Spirit to interpret, of course. And we're grateful for him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> I'll be with you in a minute. Seems as though I've lost the first page of my sermon. That should cut down on some things. Not to give up. I'm hoping it's in my briefcase. Well, there it is. Sorry, found it. We're back up to two hours. So last week we studied Christ's encounter with the despicable of the despicables. Jesus shocked a self-isolated, lonely, and angry, angry man by the name of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and was very rich. And we know the story. He scampered up a sycamore tree to get a glimpse of Jesus who was going to be passing by on that road. And to his great surprise, as Jesus approached him, he stopped and looked into his eyes and called him by name. I just want to preach that all over again, you know. There's so many of us that perceive ourselves as Zacchaeus's. And he says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Zacchaeus did just that. He hurried down and hosted Jesus in his house and received him as his Lord and Savior. And that would have been glorious enough, but there is probably more to the story. As a matter of fact, there's an account from the second century from Clementine that strongly suggests that Zacchaeus followed Jesus that day and became the bishop of Caesarea. Became a pastor. They let anybody in. Yeah, thank you. Who's taking Barbara's spot? That's what I want to know. (laughs) So how amazing is that? What a great illustration this is of the simple truth that God is not a respecter of men. 
And this leads us to yet another parable of Jesus on his way to the cross. So we are going to read our scripture for today, Luke 19, 11 through 27. So on your scripture sheet there, as you can tell, it's, it's an expanded scripture sheet today. And some of you got worried immediately, <laughs> rightfully so. Uh, but we're, we're going to soldier through this. As they heard these things, meaning from Zacchaeus, he, uh, that, from that situation, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, or minas, and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation and We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you have been faithful. In a very little you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, in a very little you have now authority over ten cities. I'm sorry, and the second came saying, Lord, your minas have made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, talking what I did not de- I'm sorry, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. And I will collect with interest. Verse 24. And he said to those who stood by, "Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the 10 minas." And they said to him, "Lord, he already he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given." But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Now, to fully understand this particular parable, we have to have a bit of a history lesson. And so we're going to go there this morning. And just fair warning, we're not going to study this parable this morning because we won't have time. So we will study the the actual parable next week. And our lesson begins with some very familiar historical players. Herod the Great, Mark Antony, Cleopatra, Julius Caesar, Augustus. People that we have read about for years, probably coming up through school, high school, junior high school, and into college, and studying the Roman Empire. And all of these people play a part in what's going to take place that makes this parable that Jesus is telling significant. Herod's great, uh, Herod the Great's father was, was, 
had the name of Antipater. A-N-T-I-P-A-T-E-R. For those of you who are looking at your little scripture sheet, Antipater was an Edomite. Now, the Edomites settled in Edom, which was where they got their name, and were the descendants of a very familiar fellow, Esau. Now, Esau, in the case you do not remember, was the eldest of a set of twins born to Isaac, who were the long-awaited sons of Abraham and Sarah. And in a moment of foolishness, Esau sold his birthright to his younger twin, Jacob, for a bowl of soup. And this created a rift in that family, and the family split. Esau ruled the land of Edom, and Jacob became heir of Abraham's kingdom and was later named Israel by God. So you have twins, and Esau should have been the firstborn, but Jacob in the womb held on to Esau and was born first. So that was the first act of betrayal. And then later on, Esau, through various circumstances lost his birthright again, so to speak. So the history of these two nations are fraught with conflict and wars. The Edomites always sided with the nations who went to battle against Israel, and they were brutal and barbaric during those conflicts. As a matter of fact, when God was leading Moses with his children out of Egypt, the Edomites said, you cannot pass through here. And they denied them passage. Now, ironically, Antipater, who was probably of Arab descent, converted to Judaism in the second century. Now, I know some of you are going, um, is this ever going to get interesting? Probably not, unless you're already interested. But this, this is very important, you guys, because many of these names we read about in the New Testament, and we have no idea who they are. But, so this is very important. Being a rich and industrious man and desiring to set up a family dynasty, Antipater endeared himself to certain political players by marrying the daughter of a noble of Petra, which was at the time the capital of the rising Arab kingdom called Nabataean. Nabataean. Now, most of the deities in the Nabataean religion were part of the pre-Islamic Arab pantheon with some of their own idols thrown in for good measure. Are we getting this? Nabataean um, I have to back up on that. He endured himself to a certain political player by marrying the daughter of a noble Petra, uh, from Petra, at the time the capital of the rising Arab Nabataean kingdom. And most of the deities in Nabataean religion were, became the pre-Islamic Arab pantheon. What we would look at as Islam. Thus, Herod the Great, a name he created for himself and had no particular significance, by the way, was of Arab origin born in Palestine and was a practicing Jew. Born an Arab, 
born an Arab in Palestine, and he was a practicing Jew. Now, when a certain Roman general by the name of Pompey invaded Palestine, which is where, who was born? Herod. In 63 B.C., Antipater supported his campaign against his own people. And this was the birth of a long association of the Herod family with Rome. So he, he betrayed the people in the country where he was born in order to gain political identity and strength with Rome. Six years later, in 57 B.C., Herod the Great met Mark Antony. And they had a lifelong friendship. Julius Caesar also favored the family. And he appointed Antipater procurator of Judea in 47 B.C. So we see Herod is setting up, Antipater is setting up his kingdom in Palestine at the expense of his own people to establish a family dynasty in Rome. In 47 B.C., he conferred on him Roman citizenship. Julius Caesar conferred on him Roman citizenship, an honor that descended to Herod the Great and his children. Herod made his political debut in the same year when his father appointed him governor of Galilee. Six years later, 41 B.C., Mark Antony made him tetrarch, And that means a governor of one of four divisions of a country or province in Galilee. So do any of you history buffs know the significance of the year 44 B.C.? What do you think? I'm not that much of a history buff. If I didn't have it in front of him, I wouldn't know the answer. What? Start. Julius Caesar was assassinated. Are you getting this timeline? Antipater endears himself to Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Julius Caesar makes Antipater king, so to speak, of Galilee. And by the way, this kingship was to be king over the Jews, but underneath Caesar. And that's exactly how he ran it. So all of this is happening And in 44 B.C., Julius Caesar was assassinated. A gentleman by the name of Octavian, which was Caesar's adopted son, and Mark Antony were now embroiled in a political and military power struggle. Herod supported his friend, Mark Antony. He did not support Octavian. Mark Antony was probably on the surface the better bet, but they were good friends. In the meantime, in 40 B.C., the Parthians, which was a mighty Iranian empire who saw Rome as a divided kingdom, invaded Palestine. Civil war broke out, and Herod was forced to flee. Herod the Great was forced to flee for his life to Rome. The Senate there nominated him king of Judea 
and equipped him with an army to make good his claim. In the year 37 B.C., at the age of 36, Herod became the unchallenged ruler of Judea. And he would maintain that position for 32 years. Now, to further solidify his power, he divorced his wife, Doris, sent her and his son away from them, and married Miriam, a Hasmonean princess. Well, the Hasmonean dynasty was comprised of faithful Jews who had been conquered by Alexander the Great. So one of the things I'm really hoping you understand here is God, God's story does not exist in a vacuum. Did you ever read about Herod and Hasmonean and, and Jesus and history and your history books? Rarely, if ever. So this is what the world claims. The world claims that their history exists in a vacuum. That all this religious stuff doesn't matter. But God is in the midst of this. So this faithful tribe of Jews began to rise up. And some of you who know some biblical history, the Maccabees are involved in this. And, you know, you can look, Google Maccabee. Amazing what you can find out. And they helped them rise up. And they provided leadership. By the time Herod was appointed king, they were once again in decline, however. Herod saw this as a great opportunity to end the feud with the Hasmoneans and endear himself to the Jews of Palestine because they didn't like him and mingle his heritage with that of the kings and queens of Israel. If nothing else, Herod was a shrewd politician an incredible salesman. And he knew an opportunity when he saw it, and he was absolutely ruthless. So he, he divorces Doris to, to marry Miriam so that he extends his heritage and his legacy, and it makes things complicated politically for anybody who would want to attack him. In the meantime, Mark Antony is defeated. After Antony's final defeat at Actium in 31 B.C., Herod audaciously confesses to Octavian, I did support Mark Antony. One year after that defeat, Mark Antony and Cleopatra commit suicide. Now, Octavian was so impressed with Herod's audacity that he went, I think you are the guy to rule down there. And so, unbelievably, Octavian confirmed Herod's position in Palestine. And Herod became the close friend of Augustus's, which is the new name for Octavian, minister. Augustus gave him the oversight of the Cyprus copper mines with a half share of the profits. Herod is a very, very rich and powerful man. He has the blessings of Rome. In Palestine, he is absolutely hated. 
Now, Herod was a tremendous leader in the sense that he built mansions, he built forts, he built gardens, and Palestine became this beautiful, beautiful place. Guess where he was living? Jericho. Who's going to pass through Jericho? Jesus. He's going to heal a blind beggar. He's going to save Zacchaeus on the way to Jerusalem. Jericho is a central point in this story. And as he grew older, Herod grew more cruel. His mental instability, moreover, was fed by the intrigue and deception that went on within his own family. Okay? Despite his affection for Miriam from the Hasmonean Empire, he was prone to violent attacks of jealousy. Much of this information comes from Encyclopedia Britannica, you guys. His sister Salome, not to be confused with the Salome who danced before Herod II and demanded John the Baptist's head. She's later. (laughs) Salome made good use of his natural suspicions and poisoned his mind against his wife in order to wreck the union. In the end, Herod murdered Miriam, her two sons, her brother, her grandfather, and Miriam's mother who conspired with Herod's relation to turn him against Miriam. Besides Doris and Miriam, Herod had eight other wives and had children by six of them. He had 14 children. I see no one nodding off yet, so thank you. But we're going to continue on with some facts here. It will all pay off in the end. I'm not sure when the end is, but it's all going to pay off in the end. Here's a brief list of Herod the Great's legacy. Herod concluded ten marriages, all for political purposes. They were probably all unhappy. His wives were, number one, Doris from an unknown family in Jerusalem, married her in B.C. 47. She was sent away in B.C. 37 and recalled 14 years later and then sent away again in B.C. 7. She was the mother of Antipater, not the father, of course, who was executed in B.C. 4. The Hasmonean princess, Miriam I, married in B.C. 37, executed in B.C. 29. And according to Flavius Josephus, who is an excellent Jewish historian, Herod was passionately devoted to this woman, but she hated him just as passionately. Five children, Alexander, Aristobulus, a nameless son, Salamseo, and Cyprus. He married an unknown niece in B.C. 37, had no children. He married an unknown cousin in B.C. 34, no children. Miriam II, the daughter of a Jerusalem priest named Simon. Now, there's a marriage that's going to be in for trouble. Married her in B.C. 29, divorced her in B.C. 7. They had a son named Herod. Malthus, a Sumerian woman, he married her in B.C. 28 
and she died in B.C. 5. Their children were Antipas, Archelaus, and Olympias. Cleopatra, no, not that one, a Jerusalem woman, was married to him in B.C. 28. They had two sons named Herod and Philip. Now, the four that we're talking about here come into play when Jesus comes through the region for his three years of adult ministry. Pallas was married, P-A-L-L-A-S, was uh, married in B.C. 16 to him. They had a son named Phaziel. Fedora married in 16 B.C. They had a daughter named Roxanne. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Elpis married in B.C. 16. They had a daughter named Salome, who danced before. Herod. Now, I believe there are two reasons, and I could come up with more, I'm sure. It is important to draw your attention to the life of Herod. It helps us understand the depth of debauchery, selfishness, arrogance, and utter evil that had consumed this man. That's the first thing we need to know. The second thing we understand is it may help us understand the importance and power of the legacy we leave behind upon our own children. And grandchildren. And great-grandchildren. Who we are right now will form who they are in 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, 50 years. It's undeniable, by the way. There's something in our DNA. Even if you don't know who your parents are, you have traits of theirs. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Herod the Great. Rome continued to expand in his rule. Herod built great forts and palaces. But even though he was doing great things, almost miraculous things, without not really miracles, by the way, it won him the bitter hatred of the Orthodox Jews in Palestine, in Jericho, who disliked Herod's Greek taste. He took some pointers from philosophy and architecture and how to rule. So he did not show this only in his building projects, but also in several transgressions, transgressions of the Mosaic Law. The Orthodox were not the only ones who came to hate the new king. The Sadducees hated him because he had terminated the rule of the old royal house to which many of them were related. He cost them their jobs and their honor and their prestige. And their influence on the Sanhedrin was all but exhausted. The Pharisees despised any ruler who despised the law, even though they didn't keep it. And probably all his subjects resented his excessive taxation. According to Josephus, the taxation was anywhere from 10.7% with an additional 8.6%. Some of us are saying, that's not so bad. Well, this is not an industrial nation. This is all farming, carpentry. It would have been a, a, a terrible taxation. So it comes as no surprise that Herod sometimes had to revert to violence, employing mercenaries and a secret police. He had his own SS to enforce order. You see, if you're in leadership and you're hated... It doesn't work. 
It just doesn't work. So depending on how much you want to be in leadership, how much you want to rule, if your people hate you, there's only one way to rule, and that's by intimidation and extreme violence. It keeps people kind of in the place that he thinks they should be. In his last years, Herod suffered from arteriosclerosis. He had to repress a revolt, became involved in a quarrel with his Nabataean neighbors, and finally lost the favor of Augustus. Octavian. He was in great pain and in mental mental and physical disorder. He altered his will three times and finally disinherited and killed his firstborn son that was named after his father, Antipater. The slaying shortly before his death of the infants of Bethlehem was very consistent with the disarray into which he had fallen. After an unsuccessful attempt at suicide, Herod died. His final treatment, I'm sorry, testament provided that subject to Augustine's sanction, of course, his realm would be divided among his sons. Archelaus would be king of Judea and Samaria, with Philip and Antipas sharing the remainder as tetrarchs. So the truth is, Herod the Great went stark, raving mad the last two years of his life. Maybe longer. He was no longer Herod the Great. He was Herod the Nuts. He was a lunatic. And he was very dangerous. One of the last orders he gave before his death was to murder every baby boy in Bethlehem that was two years and younger. Why? Because some wise men had asked him how they might find the new king of Israel. The newborn king of Israel. Now, we say three wise men. We don't, I don't think we know. But there were some people, three men, who had status. And they're going through Jericho. And they said, we have been told to follow a star, however you want to interpret that whole story. And we're looking for the newborn king of the Jews. Now, if you are Herod the Great and you have the legacy that was left to you and the legacy you have built is one of ruling people in a way that they hate your guts and you're always having to put out riots, you're always having to go back to Rome and reassure yourself that your connections there are still in place and you're in incredible pain And these men come to you and say, we are looking for the newborn king of your kingdom. Herod did exactly what we should have expected him to do. He said, kill all the babies two years and younger. And even though the Bible is taught as if God's story took place in a vacuum when it comes to world history, 
We read about Moses, Jeremiah, Samson, King David, and Herod as if those events took place in a parallel universe and had no effect on the world at large. The opposite is true. God's story is not only larger than the world stage, but God's story is larger than the universe. Actually, planet Earth as we know it, if it were not involving us, everyday people that God loved and created in His own image and fell from grace into sin, therefore now we need saved. Trust me, if it were not for us, this would have already been taken care of. I think we have to give God some credit in history because the world will never do that. So that's number one. Number two, the children of God are not exempt from the consequences brought about by the evil in this world. After all, we started the evil in this world. The Herods and the Hitlers and the Neros did what they did because of sin that is living within all of us. I used to collect little badges, you know, you stick in. I lost interest after, I don't know, two or three weeks. And, uh, but I have, I've saved a couple of them. And one says this, I am not here to make your life easier. And I think there's a scripture I could put under that, by the way. <laughs> That's exactly what Jesus is saying. I'm not here to make this life easier for you. I'm here to fulfill my plan for humanity through the sacrifice of my son. Matthew 10, 34 through 39 says this, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against his mother, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Here's the truth. God will not, God cannot spare us the consequences of the sin in this world. It's not who He is. God is just. However, God can indeed and will spare us from the consequences of our sin in heaven because He did not spare His Son the consequences of our sin on earth. If you do not know Jesus Christ, this is all there is. Live it up. It only gets worse from here. And if you haven't received Christ and you don't think you need Him, live it up. It will not work. But this, you, this is it. This is it. Just keep your eyes on the news. Keep your eyes on what people are saying in our nation. Leaders in our nation... Keep your eyes, keep your ears open. It's unfathomable what they're saying. Sometimes I think it's just a big joke. And then I realize they're serious. And by the way, you and I aren't going to stop this. It's unstoppable. 
Because Christ is coming back. God saw all these things coming together. He saw the future of Rome, the future of Julius Caesar, and the future of Antipater paving the way for his family dynasty. He saw Herod the Great and every death that would result of his rise to power. He knew Herod would try to destroy Jesus as an infant, and he also knew that Herod's son would be responsible for the suffering and death of Christ upon the cross. So where was God in the midst of all this? It's a really good answer. God was in the midst of all this. That's where he always is. He's always in the midst of it. Where where is God in the midst of your mess? He's in the midst of it. Not because you've earned it or deserve it, but because out of His grace and mercy, He's still involved in your life. Well, if this is God involving my life and I don't want Him, well, that's a choice you can certainly make and you will pay for that choice. That's okay. I don't want to see you do that. You have to come to this on your own. Sometimes we want to ask, God, can't you just rise up a little more and make my life easier? I I do understand that. But he can't because it's not his character. And you want to be able to depend upon God's character. You want to be able to do that, even if it's not... Good, good for you. So we've kind of slugged through history of the Herod family's rise to prominence in the Roman Empire. The patriarch Antipater was ambitious, diabolical, and shrewd. Herod the Great took it a step further and had unscrupulousness and viciousness. The heirs to Herod's corrupt and morally bankrupt legacy were three of his sons, Antipas, Archelaus, and Olympus. This was established in Rome when Herod still found favor with Augustus. However, because of Herod the Great's failure in his waning years, these positions were kind of up for grabs if challenged. We only have a few minutes left. Thank you for paying attention. Because Herod the Great had failed so badly in his latter years, he lost faith in his sons. So Augustus wrote him that he had to contend, had, had to, uh, Archelaus, his one son, said, you have to contend uh, for the title of ethnarch or national leader of Samaria, Judea, and Edumea. So immediately after his accession, immediately after Archelaus took control in 4 BC, things went wrong in Jericho and Palestine. When Herod had fallen ill, two popular teachers, Judas and Matthias, had incited their pupils to remove a golden eagle that Herod had put up on the temple because they felt it was idolatry. So these two teachers, Judas and Matthias, not the Judas that followed Jesus, Judas and Matthias had incited their pupils to remove this golden eagle. After all, the Ten Commandments said it was a sin to make idols. The teachers and their pupils had been burned alive for doing this. The new king had to face an angry crowd that demanded justice for these martyrs. His solution was to slaughter 3,000 Jews during the Passover celebration.
Following this event, Archelaus traveled to Rome to have himself crowned by the Emperor Augustus. However, while he was gone, there were fresh riots. Archelaus' troops were unable to cope with them, and the Roman governor of Syria had to intervene, and it was a major operation and a major embarrassment. Archelaus comes home, and 2,000 Jews are crucified. Now, what was taking place, unbeknownst to Archelaus, is when he left for Rome, a group of people got together and said, we, want, we need to send a delegation to Archelaus to tell, him, uh, to tell uh, Augustus what's going on. So Archelaus is on his way to Rome, and very shortly thereafter, there is a committee that's kind of following, and they get to Augustus. This brings us up to the birth of Christ. Matthew two nineteen through 23 says this, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Remember? The angel said, Mary, Joseph, get out of Bethlehem. Where should I go? Back to Egypt. And they did that. But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared and dreamed to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the, uh, to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, we might ask the question after reading these scriptures, why did Joseph lead his wife and newborn son to settle in Nazareth? Most of us would say to protect his son and wife, and that would be true, but ultimately it was to fulfill a prophecy. Can we see how God is manipulating world history to accommodate His divine plan? In Rock, we're studying Old Testament stories. We're going deep in them. And we just recently talked about Saul, who was appointed to be king, and how that took place. Samuel is told by God... Go look for a king and you'll know him when you see him. Saul, in the meantime, who stands a head height above every other Jewish man, and they say, and the, the history says he's strikingly handsome. It's not always a blessing, by the way. They say the history, in history that he is striking. And so his father, Saul's father, has donkeys. And three donkeys get away and they can't find them. So he goes, Saul, take a servant with you and find these donkeys. So they're out looking for donkeys. And they can't find the donkeys. But his, his servant says, you know, well, Saul, so let's go home. I'm tired of looking for donkeys. And his servant says, well, Saul, I've heard of a seer or a prophet not far from here that everything, I mean, he's the real thing. 
And Saul says, we can't go to him. We don't have anything to give him. And the servant says, I have a little bit of something. Saul of great faith, right? So they, say, they, they, they start looking for Samuel so he can tell them where the donkeys are. Short story is this. They run into each other. And God says to Samuel, that's the man. Saul says, have you seen my donkeys? He goes, you're going to be king. Now, if you're Samuel, you're looking for a king. If you're Saul, you're looking for donkeys. Saul had no idea that while he was looking for donkeys, that God was setting him up to be king. Sometimes all of our lives, we think we're looking for donkeys, right? And the whole time he's working in that. God says, I have such great plans for you. It may not look majestic or important. It's very important. So don't just think you're looking for donkeys in life. God's preparing you. Herod, Herod Archelaus ruled so badly that the Jews and Samaritans uniting, unitedly appealed to Rome to request that he should be dep- uh, deposed. And in 6 A.D., Achilles was banished to Vienna in Gaul, and after a bloody revolt led by Judas the Galilean, no, not that one, Judea became a province of the Roman Empire. They think Archelaus died at 18 years old. What a horrible, horrible legacy was left to him, and what a horrible, horrible legacy he left to the future. So why all the history? What difference can it make as we study the parable from Jesus as he was approaching Jerusalem? We're going to close by reading the parable one more time. And I want you to pay very close attention to the very last verse. Don't cheat and go there. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then returned. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Does that sound familiar? Archelaus to Rome. A delegation went after him and said, we do not want this man to rule over us. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him. Verse 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. First came uh, before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, um, uh, you, are, you are going to be over five cities. And another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did uh, not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow, and still you did nothing. Why then did you put the money in a bank? Why didn't you put the money in a bank? And at my coming, I might collect.
collect it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the miner from him and give it to the one who has the ten miners. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten miners. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for you, as for uh, as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This parable deals with very recent Jewish history concerning Archelaus and Augustus and the people who love Jesus and the people who hate Jesus and the people and what's going to happen to the people who do not receive him as the nobleman when he returns. Next week we'll study the parable. God, you are amazingly patient. All of this history. When we've been led to believe that the only thing you really cared about was a small group of people that became the descendants of Abraham, you were manipulating world history for one purpose to create a pathway. For your son to take upon himself our sins on a cross and save the world. The world looks at the story of Jesus and they see a a small, weak man. He may have been a good teacher. He may have been a good prophet. But it doesn't really matter unless you are a religious fanatic that believe that this man went to the cross and rose again and were saved through his blood. But Father, that is what matters. And the greatest deception that Satan has perpetrated on mankind is that Jesus really doesn't matter. So, Father, we pray. If there's one here or more that have not received you, God, just help them understand. You moved dynasties and empires to make way for men and twelve men to fulfill your plan and for Christ to go to the cross. God's words will not convince anybody of this. It just won't. It has to come from you. So Father, we pray. We pray for the lost. They will understand, accept, receive, and repent. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Blessings. If you would like to pray, I would love to pray with you. Blessings.